Chapter 28 of Lover of a Friend by Rosa Carey Michael turns over a new leaf. My privilege is to be the spectator of my own life drama, to be fully conscious of the tragic comedy of my own destiny, and more than that, to be in the secret of the tragic comic itself. Without grief, which is the string of this venturesome cat, man would soar too quickly and too high, and the chosen souls would be lost for the race, like balloons which, but for gravitation, would never return from the Empyrean. Amiel. Michael's return had greatly added to Audrey's happiness. In spite of her lover's society and her natural joyousness of disposition, she had been conscious that something had been lacking in her complete contentment. No one but Michael could take Michael's place, as she told him a little pathetically that first evening. But when a few days had elapsed, she became aware that things were not quite the same between them, that the Michael who had come back to her was not exactly the old Michael. The old Michael had been somewhat of an autocrat, a good-natured autocrat, certainly, who tyrannized over her for her own good, and who assumed the brotherly right of inquiring into all her movements and small daily plans. They had always been much together, especially since Geraldine's marriage had deprived her of sisterly companionship and it had been an understood thing in the Rath family that where Audrey was, Michael was generally not far off. Under these circumstances it was therefore quite natural that Audrey should expect her cousin to resume his usual habits. She had counted on his companionship during the hours Cyril was engaged in his schoolroom duties. In all times Michael had often accompanied her on her visits to her various protégés. He had always been her escort to the garden parties that were greatly in vogue at Rutherford, or he would drive her to Braille or some of the outlying towns or villages where she had business. It was somewhat of a disappointment then to find that Michael had suddenly turned over a new leaf and was far too occupied to bid her beck and call. Kester came to him almost daily, and it became his custom to spend the remainder of the morning in Dr. Ross's study. He had a habit, too, of writing his letters after luncheon. In fact, he was seldom disengaged until the evening when he was always ready to take his place in the family circle. Audrey accused herself of selfishness. Of course, she ought to be glad that Michael's health had so much improved. Her father was always remarking on the change, in a tone of satisfaction. He is like the old Mike, he said once. He has taken a new departure, and has shaken off his listlessness. Why, he works quite steadily now for hours without knocking up. He is a different man. He takes a class of me every morning. It does me good to see him with half a dozen boys round him. Blake will have to look out for himself. He is hardly as popular as the captain. Audrey took herself to task severely when her father said this. It was evident that Michael had spoiled her. She was determined not to monopolize him so selfishly. But somehow, when it came to the point, she was always forgetting these good resolutions. And another thing puzzled Audrey. Michael was certainly quieter than he used to be. When they were alone, which was a rare occurrence now, he seemed to have so little to say to her. Sometimes he would take up his book and read out a few passages, and if she begged him to put it down and talk to her instead, he would dispute the point in the most tiresome fashion. I think people talk too much nowadays, he would say in his lazy way. It is all lip service now. If women would only cultivate their minds a little more, and learn to hold their tongues until they have something worth saying, the world would not be flooded with all this muddy small talk. Now, for example, if you would allow me to read you this fine passage from Emerson. But if Audrey would allow nothing of the kind, and if, on the contrary, 
she manifested an obstinate determination to talk. He would argue with her in the same playful fashion, but she could never draw him into one of their confidential talks. But when they were all together of an evening, Michael would be more like his old self. He would sit beside the piano when she sang, and turn over the leaves for her, or he would coax her to be his partner in a game of whist, and lecture her in his old fashion. But all the time he would be looking at her so kindly that his lectures never troubled her in the least. But when Cyril spent the evening at Woodcott, which was generally once or twice a week, Michael never seemed to think that they wanted him. He would bury himself in his book or paper, or challenge Dr. Ross to a game of chess. He never took any notice of Audrey's appealing looks, and her kindly attempts to draw him into conversation with her and Cyril were all disregarded. Audrey bore this for some time, and then she made up her mind that she must speak to him. She was a little shy of approaching the subject. Michael never seemed to give her any opening now, but she felt she must have it out with him. One evening, when she and Cyril had exchanged their parting words in the hall, she went back to the drawing-room and found Michael standing alone before the fire. She went up to him at once, but as he turned to her she was struck with his air of weariness and depression. "'Oh, Michael, how tired you look!' she observed, laying her hand on his arm. "'Have you neuralgia again?' And as he shook his head, she continued anxiously. "'Are you sure you are quite well, that nothing is troubling you? You have been so quiet this evening, Michael.' And here she blushed a little. "'I want to say something to you, and yet I hardly know how to put it. It is just like your thoughtfulness, but indeed there is no need. You are never in the way.' "'Is this an enigma? If so, I may as well tell you. I give it up at once.' I never could guess conundrums, and Michael twirled his moustache in the most provoking way, but all the same he perfectly understood her. I give it up, he repeated. Audrey pretended to frown. Michael, I never knew you so tiresome before. It is impossible to speak seriously to you, and I really am serious. And then her tone changed, and she looked at him very gently. You mean it so kindly, but indeed it is not necessary. Neither Cyril nor I could ever find you in the way. He looked down at the rug as she spoke and there was a moment's silence before he answered her. She had come straight to him from her lover to say this thing to him. It was so like Audrey to tell him this. An odd thought occurred to him as he listened to her, one of those sudden flashes of memory that sometimes dart across the mind. He remembered that once in his life he had kissed her. It had been half a lifetime ago. She was only a child. They were staying in London, and he had come to see her on his way from some review. He remembered how Audrey had stood and looked at him. She had the same clear grey eyes then. "'How grand you look, Mike!' she exclaimed in an awestruck tone, for as a child she had always called him Mike. "'I wish you would always wear that beautiful scarlet coat, and I think, if you did not mind, I should like you to kiss me just for once.' Michael remembered how it felt, as she made that innocent request, and how Dr. Ross had laughed, and then when he kissed her cheek, she thanked him quite gravely and slipped back to her father. Why don't you ask for a kiss too, Gage? Dr. Ross observed in a joking way. But Geraldine had looked quite shocked at the idea. No, thank you, father. I never kiss soldiers, she replied discreetly, at which reply there had been a fresh laugh. He may be a soldier, but Mike's Mike, and I wanted to kiss him, returned Artie stoutly. Why do you laugh, Daddy? Little girls may kiss anybody. Had he cared for her since then, he wondered, and then he pulled himself up with a sort of start. Michael? Why do you not answer me? Because I was thinking, he returned quietly. Audrey, do you know you are just as much a child as you were a dozen years ago? Does it ever occur to you, my dear, that Blake 
might not always endorse your opinion. Stop, as she was about to speak. We all know what a kind-hearted person our Lady Bountiful is, and how she never thinks of herself at all. But I have a sort of fellow-feeling with Blake, and I quite understand his view of the case. The two is company, and three are none. But Michael, and here Audrey blushed again, most becomingly. Indeed, Cyril is not so ridiculous. I know what people generally think, that engaged couples like to be left to themselves, and I dare say it is pleasant sometimes, but I don't see why they are to be selfish. Cyril has plenty of opportunities for talking to me, but when he comes of an evening there is no need for you to turn the hermit. It is a character I prefer. All old bachelors develop this sort of tendency to isolate themselves at times from their fellow creatures. To be sure I am naturally gregarious, but then I hate to spoil sport. Do as you would be done by, that is the Bennett motto. So by your favour I intend Blake to have his own way. Oh, how silly you must think us, she returned impatiently. I wish you would not be so self-opinionative, Michael, for you are wrong, quite wrong. I should be far happier if you would make one of us, as you do on other evenings. And this is the role you have selected for me, replied Michael, mournfully, to play gooseberry in my old age, and get myself hated for my pains. No, my dear child, listen to the words of wisdom. Leave Mentor to enjoy a surreptitious nap in his armchair, and be content with your Blake audience. And in spite of all her coaxing and argument, she could not induce him to promise that he would mend his ways. You are incorrigible, she said as she bade him good night. After all, Cyril gives me my own way far more than you do. But Michael seemed quite impervious to this reproach. The smile was still on his face as she left him, but as the door closed, his elbow dropped heavily on the mantelpiece, and a sombre look came into the keen blue eyes. Shall I have to give it up and go away? he said to himself. Life is not worth living at this price. Oh, my darling, my innocent darling, why do you not leave me in peace? Why do you tempt me with your sweet looks and words to be false to my own sense of honour? But I will not yield, I dare not, for all our sakes. If she will not let me take my own way, I must just throw it all up and go abroad. God bless her. I know she means what she says, and Mike is Mike still. And then he groaned, and his head dropped on his arms, and the tide of desolation swept over him. He was still young, in the prime of life, and yet what good was his life to him? Audrey was a healthy-minded young person. She was not given to introspection. She never took herself to pieces in a morbid way to examine the inner workings of her own mind, after the manner of some folk who regulate themselves in a bungling fashion, and wind themselves up afresh daily, and who would even time their own heartbeats if it were possible. Audrey was not one of these scrupulous self-critics. She would have considered it waste of time to be always weighing herself and her feelings in a nicely adjusted balance. Know thyself, said an old thinker, but Audrey Ross would have altered the saying, Look out of yourself. Self-forgetfulness is better than any amount of self-knowledge. Nevertheless, Audrey was a little thoughtful after this conversation with Michael, and during the next few weeks she was conscious of feeling vaguely dissatisfied with herself. Now and then she wondered if she were different from other girls, and if her absence of moods and her constant serenity and gaiety were not signs of a phlegmatic temperament. She was perfectly content with her own position. 
She had never imagined before how pleasant it would be to be engaged, and to have one human being entirely devoted to her. She was very much attached to her fiancé. He never disappointed her. On the contrary, she discovered every day some new and admirable trait that excited her admiration, and as a lover he was simply perfect. He never made her uneasy by demanding more than she felt inclined to give. At the same time, it deepened her sense of security and restfulness to feel how completely he understood her. But now and then she would ask herself if her love for Cyril were all that it ought to be. She began to compare herself with others, with Geraldine, for example. She remembered the months of Geraldine's engagement, and how entirely she and Percival had been absorbed in each other. Geraldine had never seemed to have eyes or ears for anyone but her lover, and in his absence she had hardly seemed like herself at all. She had been obliged to pay a few weeks' visit to some friends in Scotland, and Audrey had accompanied her, and she remembered how, when their visit was half over, she had jestingly observed that she would never be engaged to anyone if she were compelled to lose her own identity. Well, you know you're not the same person, Gage, she had said. Instead of taking pleasure in our friend's society, you shut yourself up and write endless letters to Percival, and when you drive out or go in the boat, you never seem to see the beautiful scenery, and the mountains and the lock might be in the clouds, and when anyone asks you a question, you seem to answer it from a distance, and everyone knows that your thoughts are at Rutherford. And though Geraldine had chosen to be offended at this plain speaking, she had not been able to defend herself. And then, had not Audrey once found her crying in her room, and for a long time she had refused to be comforted. Audrey had been much alarmed, for she thought something must be wrong at Woodcut, but it was only that Percival had a headache and seemed so dull without her. He says he really cannot bear the place without me, that he thinks he must go to Edith, and I ought to go home dreadfully, finished Geraldine tearfully. I didn't think engaged people ought to leave each other, and I know Percival thinks so too. Audrey remembered this little episode when, during the Christmas holidays, Cyril was obliged to go up to town for ten days. She missed him excessively, and wrote him charming little letters every day, but nevertheless the time did not hang heavily on her hands. But she was glad when the day of his return arrived, and she went down to the grey cottage to welcome him. Mrs. Blake had suggested it as a little surprise, and Audrey had agreed at once. Cyril's delighted seeing her almost deprived him of good manners. He knew his fiancée objected to any sort of demonstration before people, and he only just remembered this in time, as Audrey drew back with a heightened colour. But he made up for it afterwards, when Mrs. Blake left them alone, and Audrey was almost overwhelmed by his vehement expressions of joy at finding himself with her again. "'It has been the longest ten days I've ever spent in my life,' he observed. "'I was horribly bored and as homesick as possible. I'm afraid Norton found me very poor company. If it had not been for your letters, I should not have borne it. You shall never send me away again, dearest.' "'But that is nonsense,' she returned in her sensible way. "'You cannot stop at Rutherford all the year round.' and it will not do for you to lose your friends. I shall have to pay visits myself, and I am afraid I shall not always ask your leave if any very tempting invitations come. You will not need to do so, he answered quietly. Do you think I should begrudge you any pleasure? I have no wish, even if I had the right, to curtail your freedom. I am not so selfish. You are never selfish, she returned softly. Cyril, dear, I suppose I ought to be pleased that you feel like this, but you know... I'm just a little sorry. Sorry? And indeed, he could hardly believe his ears, for was he not paying her a pretty compliment? Yes, 
It makes me rather uncomfortable. It seems to me as though I ought to feel the same, as though there was something wanting in me. I sometimes fancy I am different from other girls. Do not compare yourself with other people, he returned quickly, for he could not bear her to look troubled for a moment. This mood was new to him, and he had never seen a shade on her bright face before. You have a calm temperament, that is your great charm. You are not subject to the cold and hot fits of ordinary mortals. It is my own fault that I cannot be happy without you, but I do not expect you to share my restlessness. Ah, that is right, she replied, very much relieved by this. You are always so nice at understanding things, Cyril. Do you know I was blaming myself for feeling so comfortable in your absence? but I was so busy, I had so many things to interest me, and then I had Michael. The young man flushed slightly, yet he had learnt to repress himself. He knew far better than she did that his love was infinitely greater than hers, but what of that? She was a woman made to be worshipped. It never troubled him when she talked of Michael. Cyril's nature was too noble for jealousy, but just for the moment her frankness jarred on him. I think I was nearly as happy as usual, she went on, determined to tell the truth, and yet by your own account you were perfectly miserable. But that was my own fault, he returned lightly. Men are unreasonable creatures, they are not patient like women. It is true that I have no life apart from you now, and that I always want to be near you, but I do not expect you to feel the same. Audrey looked at him thoughtfully. He gave her so much, and yet he seemed to demand so little. You are very good to me, Cyril, she said in a low voice. I never thought you would understand me so thoroughly. You leave me so free, and you make me so happy. I wonder where you have learnt to be so wise. My love for you has taught me many things, he answered. Do I really make you happy, sweetheart? But the look in her eyes was sufficient answer. This was his reward, to see her perfect content and trust in him, and to bask in her sweet looks and smiles.